0: Hey, gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. I'm going to use this forum to share my thoughts about the games I play and the people I meet. We'll experiment and work to find some interesting content. I look forward to your thoughts, comments, and ideas. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with prolific designer Martin Wallace. We'll discuss at length his newest game, Lincoln, now available on Kickstarter. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your feedback. Martin Wallace was born July 1962 in a town near Southampton, England, and grew up near Manchester. He graduated university with a degree in humanities, mostly history, and a teaching certificate. He enjoyed board games and had a fascination with war. He would collect toy soldiers, build model airplanes, and tanks. In secondary school, his science teacher ran a games club at school, and about the same time... He bought his first board war game, SPI's Star Force. By 15, he was playing SPI games like Air War. At university, he was introduced to Dungeons & Dragons. He got a store job at Games Workshop, where he would spend most days learning new games. He also picked up a lot of games cheap. He went back to university and took a break from gaming. In 1990, he returned to gaming and decided he wanted to design games. His first promising game was Lords of Creation. The first review was positive and then the orders started coming in. In 1994, he drove to Essen and every year since he's gone back. Martin currently lives in Brisbane, Australia. He's designed three of the most renowned train games, Brass, Steam, and Age of Steam. His more widely known games include those train games just mentioned, A Few Acres of Snow, London, and His Study in Emerald. Martin has wargaming in his blood and has designed a number of interesting games on topics familiar to fans of conflict simulations. Though he said before there's no money in two-player wargames, and I have to agree, he returns to the topic from time to time. Titles that may ring a bell are Struggle of Empires, Pericles, Waterloo, Gettysburg, A Few Acres of Snow, Clash of Wills, Test of Fire, and In Flanders Field. We start the interview with a question to Martin, on where he came up with the basic concepts behind his latest game, Lincoln.
1: Uh, Okay, the the American Civil War game came about purely and simply because uh, Mayfair asked me to do a series of games on the American Civil War. Um, uh, This is going back, ooh, 2010, maybe further. I lose track of time. But it's going back a bit because um, there was a period of time when I was quite close to Mayfair because they um, published Steam and they published a few other of my games. Um, And they wanted a series of light war games Um, on the American Civil War. So that led initially to uh, Bull Run, um, then Shiloh, and they also asked me to do a game that would cover the entire period of the war. Uh, So that that was the motivation. Otherwise, yeah, I don't think I would have just, off of my own bat, gone off to do a game on that period of time. Um so having been asked to do that game um i took as my inspiration uh frank chadwick's a house divided which i remember playing to death many many years ago when it first came out i think in 1980 81 somewhere around then but at that time i don't know if you've played the game or not but at that time i i was you know a proper war game i was playing squad leader and some big hex games. So to come across something that was so um, relatively simple, light, relatively fast playing for the time, um, but still felt um, deep, you know, there's still a lot going on in it. It still felt like it, um, a lot of the history came out of that. So that, that was my inspiration for Lincoln, was to try and do something that was as simple and pared back as possible, but still contained some of the, the central issues, um, the central um, characteristics of the war.
0: I'm a big fan of House Divided. I remember playing it in, I guess, high school for me, and uh, it was the first time I'd seen point-to-point movement. Mm. That was fascinating. But you bring up, I, I note that the Kickstarter is is sponsored by PSC Games, and I see Worthington Publishing, of course. You mentioned Mayfair, and then of course I think about Tree Frog, which you've famously been very closely associated with. Can Can you give us a, just a brief explanation of the business relationships? I could do, <laughs> if you had the less time. It's a bit complicated. As I say, I, I
1: think initially I had a good relationship with Mayfair, then it kind of went cool for a variety of reasons, which I'm not really prepared to go into here. As I, I designed the ACW game for them, I sent it over, I didn't hear anything back for ages, um, and then we we kind of parted company. So the game was just gathering dust. Um, I, you know, I didn't even bother looking for another publisher. And um, PSC occurred because I was over in the UK. I think three years ago now, and um, I just popped into the UK Games Expo because I happened to be over there at the same time as the expo, and I bumped into an old friend of mine, um, James Hamilton, who I used to, who used to be part of Free Frog, and he introduced me to Will Townsend the owner of the plastic soldier company as somebody that I might um, be interested in doing business with. And and Will's a very friendly, happy chap and he he certainly thought he saw some possibilities in doing work with me. Um, So I I showed him Lincoln and he really liked the look of it. Uh, It wasn't really something that fitted with what they'd done previously because the plastic Soldier company. They tend to do games with plastic pieces in them. Lincoln is not that, but um, he really enjoyed the design and thought that there was potential in that. So that's how that came out. Um, tree frog thing is separate. Yeah, there the used to be tree frog, but well, it used to be war frog. Then it changed to tree frog. Uh, but effectively now, tree frog is uh, dead and buried um the company is no longer operating, um, so I am no longer in the publishing business, I just work on game designs and license them to other companies, uh, it was just it was getting too complicated running the business from New Zealand, we weren't making the kind of money we used to be making, or we back in the UK. So, and and the the world has changed, you you have to be so much more media savvy now, you have to be on Kickstarter, you have to do Twitter, you have to do Facebook, you have to do all of these things that I never had to do when I first started. And even if you don't do that, you can't sell the product. So I I kind of figure, well, focus on what you're good at. Well, get design is about the only thing I can do and let other people do all of that media stuff, all of that marketing stuff. Uh, and deal with publishing and importing and exporting and all of that stuff, which I just find a headache.
0: My next question relates to what once you've decided you're going to go with American Civil War game, and you've decided House Divided is a nice frame for that. It certainly provides the basis of a of a simpler map, but certainly differences, right? I, I, the combat system in Lincoln is uh, determinative, not uh, random. Um, you don't know what your, play, what your opponent has played as an additional card, but, but you're not rolling dice. It's not that random. So there are some other systems that are of interest and in the um, European track that can conclude the game. So, so I'm just kind of curious about how you think about these systems when you decide to put down your first prototype of the American Civil War Lincoln.
1: You do the reading. Uh, I mean, fortunately, I'd already knew a reasonable amount about the American Civil War, and I've played enough games on the American Civil War to have a, a reasonable understanding of the outline of the history. Um, the, I did feel that there were certain things that House Divided did not cover, specifically the blockade. Which seemed to me uh, a very important part of the war, that this, the, you know, the, the Anaconda strategy of slowly strangling the South. And I thought it, it, it would be difficult doing a game on the period without taking that into account. So it's like, yeah, you have to have a blockade. The European thing, well, yeah, with hindsight, after the fact, highly unlikely that either Britain or France would have intervened in the war because it's far too messy. However, the people at the time didn't know that both the north and the south were both trying to um, match that relationship. Or you know, the north obviously was trying to stop the south from influencing Britain and France. Uh, conversely, the south was sending uh, delegates over there to try and in um, favour. So it 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 was. The game very much is not about the real reality; it's about the perceived reality at the time. That that's really about what the game is about. So it's not trying to model historical reality because the historical reality was the North would have struggled to lose, but the perceived reality was something different. So that's what the game is trying to model. Um, the yellow elements, I can't exactly remember remember where the deck destruction thing came from. I think it may have been because. At that time, I was doing a lot of deck-building games and I possibly started with the idea of doing a deck-building game. But the thing with deck-building games is they are constructive in the sense you start with a small number of cards and you add to your deck. You know, and So therefore, your deck becomes more powerful. Now, that is not the nature of war, certainly not the nature of war in terms of the South, where as the war went on they became weaker and weaker so somewhere along the line i must have had this idea well okay let's start with a larger deck and have cards been sucked out of it um i know i know from back when i used to do train games uh, some of the people i knew would do train game uh, train games about the south and how it was about um not about building railways, but it was about deciding which railways to destroy, because you needed the, the, the iron to for your um, munitions. So the South was basically eating itself to stay in the war. So I, I knew very early on somehow I wanted to get this idea of the South having to eat its resources, that, that you know the finite resources, to be able to continue to fight. Um, so so that's really where this idea that came about of a deck destruction system
0: you know there's um, as I think about the European intervention concept uh, you know the American Revolution was only a couple you know a couple of generations prior to the American Civil War so I agree with your assessment that it it's highly unlikely but after uh, you know witnessing and celebrating the French intervention in the American Revolution you can imagine that the people in the United States at the time uh, certainly expected that it Foreign intervention could could really make a difference. So uh, uh, it's a, and it's an interesting construct, and, and you know it's these things aren't always binary, right? It's it's uh, uh, the 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 intervention can take place in many forms, uh, either through trade or uh, exerting a little bit of pressure at sea, or you know it doesn't have to be uh, binary. So so anything could have happened. So so the uh, you talked a little bit about the the, the uh, use of the deck and in, in effect is the currency in, in Lincoln um, and mm. and it it makes me think about you you mentioned the, the asymmetry right that that in effect the south was eating itself and 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 the north wasn't right the north was uh, kind of the allies during World War two where they were mm. on the on the build uh, at that point certainly in the Pacific and And so, um, in my mind, uh, I'm kind of curious about how you think about all of these asymmetries with the goal of creating a balanced two-player game. And clearly, all of the the asymmetries you mentioned are all influenced by the story arc for the game, right? Right. So yes. I'm just kind of curious about how you think about the balance. It's, it's a
1: bizarre thing, but when, I think when people think that you design a game, that somehow you do a giant spreadsheet and crunch all these numbers to come up with these things. I, I mean, Riley Knizia possibly does. I don't. I just go, well, oh, that feels about the right number. You know, oh, yeah, we'll stick five five-star generals in. and we'll, we'll, it, It's a weird thing. It's just you do it by feel it just yeah this feels about right and then play it a few times and yeah just tweak it a little bit maybe bump up the south a bit or something like that but there's no there's actually no close analysis as such there's no breaking down the relative forces of each side and converting them to strength points it, it is just done by feel it is just what feels right and, and i pretty much do this in all of my games because uh, I think some people look and think, well, how, how did you decide what to put on these cards? And, you know, how, how did you do the calculations? And i like, well, well, I didn't. I, I just put down what I felt was right. And it just felt right. And if it feels right, well, then it's probably right. Because um, I am a strong believer in that, yes, it's good to do the history, but first and foremost, the game should work as a game. You know, that... that, that if it doesn't work as a game, then, then it has failed. So sometimes history has to take the back seat to that. No, we need this to be a balanced game where each side feels they have a reasonable chance of victory. Uh, although, given the, the, the latest thing on BGG, to what degree it's balanced or not it, it is a, a big question mark. But um, anyway.
0: It's it's interesting, right, I mean, because you, you start with that, but then, of course, you have an iterative process related to playtesting and your own uh, pushing of your own counters and cards, right? And then, um, you know, I, I remember at the end of uh, Liberty or Death, uh, Volko Runka, a much more experienced designer than myself, said, you know, I was kind of asking him, how do you decide that it's as balanced as it's going to get? And he said, you, it's just a gut feel that, that there's there's not a science to it. Um, so in the end, it becomes the designer's choice and the designer's gut feel that defines when the game's balanced and playable.
1: Yes. Um, although in, in this case, I, I, I suffer w- When the game went to Classic Soldier Company, um, I was in New Zealand, so I didn't have my regular crew of playtesters. And the, the kind of playtester you need for a war game is very different from the kind of playtester you need for a multiplayer game. Um and to, so really, I, I kind of offloaded it to the plastic soldier company with the thing saying, look, the game's reasonably balanced, but I'm really not sure. There may still be something in there, but it just needs playing and playing and playing the game because I, I wasn't in the position to find somebody in New Zealand that was of the right skill level to bring those issues out. And it it is a problem when you are designing games, and it it is finding really good playtesters who can find those issues. Um, I'm quite lucky now in Brisbane that there's quite a lot, there's a much larger pool of board gamers, and there are some, I've come across some very good playtesters who, um, certainly with some of my games, have very quickly uh, zeroed in on issues and broken the game. Uh, but the, and this is a you, to a certain degree as a designer, you, you are reliant on the quality of your playtesters, and you have no control over that.
0: Agreed, and and uh, technology has made the world smaller in some regards. Um, oftentimes, the the playtesters are built around personal relationships, and uh, and and requires uh, certainly for war games a greater commitment. I hear you uh, your challenge, uh, as, you, as you mentioned it, in the context of balance and play testing, uh, you and I talked a little bit before we started here that that Marco's done a review and and has identified what he refers to as the Manassas hammer, which may be a, a in effect a hang up uh, within the game, and and so uh, curious about when when you when something like that comes up, certainly at a critical time here we we're in the, the midst of the Kickstarter campaign, how do you think about these things and and uh, and how do you address them? Yeah, I mean I have to say it, it, it's not
1: it's not a pleasant experience having people having stuff like this on on the on BGG. But and it can't be helped. When you know, the, the nature of the beast is when you put a game out there, you are opening yourself to criticism and you have to accept that. You have to accept that what you put out there may have an issue with it that you missed. Um, the thing with the, the, the Marco thing is I, I looked at the video and everything he said made sense. However, what, the only way for me to know absolutely if he's playing it the right way and trying to deal with that strategy the right way would be if i down with him and go over the game with him. What's going to happen? Um, reasons of uh geography. Uh, I think the fortunate thing is if there is a balance issue is relatively easy to fix, because the game is of a fixed length. Uh, The North have a fixed amount of time, as dictated by the number of shuffles they get, to achieve a certain number of victory points. So, if the balance is slightly off, all you have to do, somehow, is give the North a little bit more time, which, which can be done in a number of different ways, just to shift the balance slightly their way. But what we are talking about, you know, that the game is very close to that balance point. So you, any, any modifications you make will be very slight, because if you shift it too far, then you can end up favoring the North too much. And, and that originally was my big issue, because ultimately the North does have the stronger forces. It's got the best cards. It's got more units. If it can get its machine going and if it can get its engine going it can stomp the South and there's nothing the South that can do about it As happened historically so that that was actually my main concern but North would actually have a killer strategy so I think there are things there, there are very simple tweaks you can do to move the, the pointer slightly in favour of the Union and that should be enough. Um, now Having said that, the, the situation that Mark and his opponent got into, yes, the first time you play, you don't really know what you're doing, and it is a bit of a wild ride. After that, it's like, ah, yeah, we know what we're doing now, and then you start to play more cautiously. And to my mind, the, the game there at that point becomes much more like um, a sumo wrestling match where every time your opponent does something somewhere, you oppose it. And so if they do something in the west, if they build units in the west, you build units in the west. If they build units in the east, you build units in the east. So there's very much this um, kind of every time somebody does something, you can eat it directly. So, so the, the art then is how to somehow show your opponent off balance. Because what I found when I was playing the game is that, yeah, you can play in a very controlled manner but then if you suddenly do something slightly rash or if you just make, you know, make a move that looks safe, but it turns out that the player can um, exploit that, suddenly you can be off balance. And I think that's where the actual gameplay lies. And I think where Marco had got up to is that point where, yeah, we, we're just directing each other and finding it difficult to move against each other. The art is finding the way to throw the other player off balance. And when you do that, things can change very quickly. So, um, and you know, do, do, doing that, there's, there are cards that allow that. I mean, it's like, for instance, the Union have got a, a rail movement card, so they can very quickly move two units from Washington over to a weaker front, launch an attack there that the South have to respond to. They've got the ability to launch naval invasions, which takes a bit of preparation, but if you time it right, especially if you time it just before you have to reach one of the milestones, can be very effective. So the North has this certain things it can do to throw South off balance. The South also, I mean, if you think about it, you know, Lee's strategy basically in the East was trying to throw the North off balance because he knew he couldn't attack Washington directly. Hence why he had to go around the side. Hence why you ended up with Antietam and Gettysburg and all of those battles around Harper's Ferry because he was trying to throw the North off balance. So, uh, but just to um, kind of go off at a slight tangent, um, obviously there's some people bringing up the whole issue of a few acres of snow where you know you also had what is perceived as a dominant strategy. Again, I think this is always one of the interesting things with war games, in that, in reality, generals get to fight a battle once, that's it. You get one Waterloo, you get one Gettysburg, you get one Second World War. You do not get to play it repeatedly. And it's the repeated play that allows people to find these potential strategies. What I always found amusing in A Few Acres of Snow was, that the way they broke the game, or perceived to break the game, is actually the way that the British defeated the French. And that the British and France had fought numerous times before, but the British had never quite figured out what to do to beat the French. But eventually, by trial and error, it's like, oh, okay, we we just go up here, go up to Quebec, and then down and, you know, beat the hell out of them. But they'd never realized that before, because the, 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 the situation was too messy. It, it was too complex for them. You know, they didn't have proper maps. They did you know there was no you don't have modern technology which allows you to identify where all units were. Again, organizing your forces, you didn't know which are which people were going to turn up. You know, you you say oh we're gonna have a campaign and then nobody turns up because they're off doing something else. So it was a lot mess a lot messier then. So people couldn't see what was clearly the best thing to do. Um I know that it's like with the Waterloo game I did, um, there's a particular powerful strategy there of marching down the centre, which Napoleon could have done and he probably would have won the Battle of Waterloo. But there was some reenactment I saw where you had that. There was one of these TV programmes back in the 80s where they re-fought battles with um, use, using real generals and they'd re these battles. And that's what the uh, guys who were running the French forces did, and they won. And I'm kind of thinking, so, is the game broken? Or is history broken? <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is why I think it's an interesting philosophical question, because people look at all oh, the game broken, it's like, yeah, but you're actually modeling event, which technically is also probably broken, in the sense that if they if these generals knew all of this information, and if they could have modeled this fight and fought it and fought and fought again, the they probably could have gone into it. And said, yeah, there is a game-winning strategy here and there's nothing my opponent can do about it.
0: Right. And what conflict situation in history has been balanced?
1: Probably none of them. Uh, but you but, no, but nobody knows where the balance is. And this is where it comes back to perception. Um, it's that whole thing in the Second World War, isn't it, with the Allies being absolutely scared that the, the Germans were working on an atomic bomb and you look at the, the reality of the German economy after the all. there's no way they had the means to that especially when you look at the the, the resources that America poured into the Manhattan Project were enormous they're way beyond what the Germans could have done but the perception at the time was this is something they had to be worried about because you, you're never sure I mean I think this is again the, the second world war the Germans were perceived to be better. I think they were perceived to be a better army than they really were. Uh, and I think there was a degree that the Allied forces felt inferior. But Britain had a mechanized army. The Germans did not have a mechanized army. They had bits that were mechanized, but most of it by horse. I mean, it's just the Germans had you. Their way. And it, it just, I think, it fed into this mentality that the German is a superior soldier. Or, or, you know, their tanks are better. And in fact, like the tanks weren't better. They, they, they completely messed up their tank production by going for overly complex beasts that broke down after a couple of hours. Whereas the Sherman, yeah, they have a tendency to blow up, you know, flame up. But we've got loads of them. We've got tons of them. Uh, it was, you know, I think generally with wars, I think there's two phases. You get that first bit where if you can land a quick punch, you can win against the odds. As soon as it becomes attritional, then one side is stuck. So it's like, you know, we went back to the American Civil War. Yes, it's possible that the South had won a number of quick victories right at the beginning, that that might have made a difference. But as soon as it became attritional, there was only ever going to be one winner.
0: Right, right. Which was Grant's realization, right? That that we win the war of attrition. Yeah. Now uh, it, it's interesting too. I, th- I think that that we play these games, uh, war gamers in general, because we're uh, we, we enjoy the theme, right? We enjoy putting ourselves in the role of that leader. But the, there's also a a group of us, or some portion of all of us, that play these games because they're puzzles. And I think that's the uh you know, that's where we run into the this lack of balance debate, right? That it's not thematic. It's really about the puzzle isn't balanced and we have a problem with that and the and the curse for someone that makes games as popular as yours and, and few acres of snow is a great example, is that uh <laughs> there's just a ton of people that play it for the puzzle.
1: Yes, I mean and I do this myself. There'll be certain games that I, I where I'll be looking at, yeah, is there an optimum strategy? So, right. yeah, you can't really criticize people for that because that that, uh, that is very often a challenge. I um, remember years ago, I used to, uh, guy used to play Onslaught with, you remember the old um, old SBI game? Yes. Um, and we played that and played that and played that because he, he reckoned he, he always won. And I, I came up with this strategy with the Germans where, I just spread all of my forces out and it just, I did a fluff defense and never break through and it. It was completely a hysterical. You know, if you had done that in reality, you would have been rolled over. But within a war game, you can sometimes do things that you couldn't do in reality that can be very effective. Right. Which is the challenge as a designer is, is trying to Stop those gamey uh, elements. Um, but yeah, it it, it is. That it, I mean, yeah, you, you have to accept that as part of the joy of playing game is to see if there's an optimal strategy, and then also whether there is a challenge to that strategy. You know, it's yeah. You come up with a strategy, I come up with counter strategy, and you come up with a counter counter strategy.
0: So. Let's leave uh, Lincoln behind for now, and, and uh, what's next for you game-wise? What are you working on? Oh,
1: I'm working on a ton of stuff. Um, well, there's nothing particularly wargaming. Uh, what am I working on at the moment? The um, thing is, now that I'm not publishing, I, it's difficult for me to talk about things that I'm working on for other publishers. Because... Uh-huh. That is up to them to announce uh, when they want to uh, announce stuff. But, yeah, so I'm working, most of the stuff I'm working on is multiplayer. Uh, So I'm trying to think of things I can talk about that aren't going to annoy people. (laughs) Now, I
0: saw a couple of games on the Gen Con event list as I was kind of going through that.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, stuff. I mean, there's quite a lot of stuff coming out this year. Uh, going back to what I was saying about Tree Frog, when um, this is kind of uh, me blowing my own trumpet, really, but I, I decided to end Tree Frog years ago because I realised this isn't working. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to have to start ramping up the designs for publication. Now you cannot do that instantly it takes a long time so what we're seeing this year is the fruit decisions made two or three years ago to just get stuff out there so people i think will presume that i've been really busy this year and it's like no i was really busy three years ago all you're now seeing is the fruits of all my business all those years ago uh so yeah this year we've got moa coming from eight games, which I think is out now. Um, I know I was playtesting with some friends last night, and one of them said, oh, they, they had a game of Mo." I have not even had my copy yet, uh, which uh, I think will be at Gen Con. Uh, there's a game coming from Indie Boards and Cards. I don't know what they've renamed it. I called it Dark Hearts. It was a kind of semi-cooperative traitor mechanic game. It, and I know they've rethemed it into the coup, um, resistance universe so there's going to be that coming from them uh there's wildlands yes i can talk about wildlands which probably will fit because it's kind of got a war gamey base to it so there's wildlands coming from osprey which i am quite excited about because this is my take on a uh, kind of man-to-man squad level uh tactical arena game now I know the hmm. game is um, now got a fantasy uh, theme to it, but actually the whole game is based around the idea of opportunity fire that was the whole core mechanic was I wanted a game where you had a simple way of modeling opportunity fire hmm. being because. You know, it's difficult for war games to get it right, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you ever played a you know, Squad Leader or all these games. Opportunity fire was always a nightmare because it's that by very definition, it's happening out of turn. Certainly. So what, what I had with this is uh, just a simple card game. I thought I want I want the combat to be as simple and quick as possible. But another one of my little pet peeves is you, you get these kind of combat games, you get these um I have to give some good examples, but but very often, the designer thinks, oh, we'll have dice in there. As soon as you add dice to a game, you slow everything down because you're having to break from the game. Right? Let's work out what the result is, apply the result. Okay, then do some more actions. Let's roll more dice. Now, so I always feel that dice uh, slow a game down. And what I wanted was a very quick tactical game. So the combat in it is basically, I shoot you i automatically hit unless you've got a card that says i don't that's it so and um, you know if you've got a shield symbol bang you block it you, you you have a modification for cover in that if you've got a card with and uh, more of your cards will have the shield plus cover thing so if you're in woods or behind stuff you're more likely to have a card that blocks it so generally if you're in the open you're relatively easy to hit if you're in cover, you're harder to hit. So that, that's all of your terrain modifiers you need. But basically is I play a card, if you don't block it, I hit you. No dice roll or anything. And the thing is, when it's your turn, you can do as many actions as you like. Like, yeah, I'll move this unit, I'll go over here, I'll fire that, whatever you want, you can do whatever you want. But the other player or players, after each individual action, have the opportunity to play a card with an interrupt symbol on And if they do that, then it becomes their turn. And what, what I was trying to get the idea was that if you move out into the open, if you're in open territory, it's a dangerous place to be. And if the other player plays a card with an interrupting, and they also have cards that allow you um, to fire at you, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So you have to think carefully about movement. Don't just rush off, go here, there, and everywhere, because you're going to get shot at and you're going to die. And it's, it's interesting, when I'm doing playtesting, every newbie would do this, and that. They they reveal a character, step into the open. I'd reveal a character, just above them, and just kill them. Go, oh, yes, I said that's the kind of game we've got here. And but very quick playing. You know, you get a whole game done in half an hour. So, for people who are war gamers, yes, I know it's got a fantasy thing, but I think it would be interesting to look at because it is also an interesting tactical battle where you also you know have to have units supporting each other and you have. To you have to problem solve in the sense of okay, where are we trying to get to? How are we going to use it? How are we going to use the terrain to our best advantage for
0: that? Let, let's move to something a little more informal, mm. and uh, I'd like to ask a few questions about um, what you're doing in your personal life—not too deep, but uh, what what kind of uh, what kind of music do you listen to? Um,
1: mostly progressive rock. So. Spotify is great. You just download so much stuff. So um, I like bands like Porcupine. Uh, let's see. Pineapple Thief. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Porcupine yes. 3. Uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of Marillion, I like Marillion, Both old and new. Still like the old classics like David Bowie, Queen, Radio, Radiohead. I absolutely love Radiohead. Brilliant. And... Um, But then, uh, I don't know, all sorts of stuff. Jeff Beck. Uh, And then, yeah, I'd say it it tends to be because of Spotify. If you like this, try that. So, a whole lot of bands I'd never heard of, like Afghan Whip and um, Millionaire and Car Seat Headrest, which I kind of suppose more indie rock than pop rock, but mostly rock music music with guitars in general i used to listen to a lot of classical but i've moved away from that now
0: i've just got out of the habit i try to in every episode of the podcast i try to promote a a local indie band Mm. Uh, so i i play the intros and outros uh, with some of their music which is uh which is good fun this but it's a process of discovery for me as well yeah what about uh Television, movies. What have you seen recently? You've liked? See, we don't actually have terrestrial because we never got a set-top
1: box. We don't. We don't watch a massive amount of TV. So it does. At the moment, it tends to be if it, you know, it's got to be on Netflix. Um, so we've been bizarre. We've been watching a lot of Orange is the New Black, which is yes. pretty good. Very well written. Really well written. Um, I tend to, Julia and I, we, we kind of have different, there's certain things where we'll watch together, things like that. We're also watching Outlander together because i watched it ages ago, and I didn't think it was Julia's kind of thing, but then she suddenly got into it, and like so we've been watching Outlander. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with that.
0: I am. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I kind of like sci-fi fantasy stuff, so I've been just watching Altered Carbon, uh, I did try watching the new Star Trek thing, but got a bit bored. Um, but usually kind of all those kind of sci-fi things like Travellers and Sensei and stuff like that. Uh, kind of bubblegum for the mind, I suppose.
0: <laughs> I really That's enjoyed,
1: right. I, I really enjoyed The Expanse as well. I made me go out and get the books and read all the books, but I thought The Expanse was very good.
0: Yes, agreed, and and uh, a little distressed to hear that they're going to cancel it after the third season.
1: Are they? Oh, don't have that. Ah, it's just really annoying when they do that.
0: I'd finish it. There's so much, so much more story to tell.
1: Yeah, I suppose it would be difficult doing the whole thing. I suppose because the books are, are, are done in trilogies. I suppose at least as long as they finish the first trilogy, then that's not so bad. <laughs>
0: that's right. Phrase it properly.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I suppose also I have to say I really enjoy Game of Thrones, but then um uh, yeah, but then I think everybody does does not know, so it's not saying anything new.
0: Right, right. No, that's that's very good. So what about uh reading? Do you do you primarily read for research? Do you have other fictional um favorites?
1: It's mostly research. Mostly research. Uh makes it sound rather dull, but some of the research can be fun. So the moment I'm I'm going back, I'm trying to work on a game on Roman history, so I've been going back and doing reading up on ancient Rome, but I've also been reading around it. So the moment I'm reading um, History of the Ancient Mediterranean by Fernand Braudel, who may or may not be familiar to you, but he's an old French historian, dead now, but a uh, very famous historian who uh, it's always about his views. The long duration, so he he tends to write books that don't centre on individual events, but it's all about population movement, technology changes, um, patterns in trade, which from uh, a board game is board game design's point. That's all the interesting stuff. You know, that that's all the fascinating stuff because if you're going to do a game. On the civilization game that's all the stuff that you want to, to stick in your game um, right. so i say I have been reading the Expanse, I've enjoyed that but I don't read a lot of fiction and I find um, I don't know, I, a lot of it I just find disappointing because I think when you read a lot of history, there's so many amazing things that happen, that have happened in real life, when you, when you read fiction it's like you're just making stuff up, aren't you? I mean, it's just, for some reason, it's not as satisfying. Um, <laughs> I mean, having said that, I mean, that was the nice thing about Game of Thrones, that, because you could see the historical base. And to a certain right. degree, the expanse has also got that, in that, yes, it's the future, but there's a kind of historical base in the betrayal of human nature.
0: It's yeah, just... perhaps a sociology that's built into it that's that's based on... Yeah. Uh, things that have actually happened.
1: Yes. Um, so, but yeah, most mostly nonfiction, mostly dull historical stuff. Uh, I I usually you know Julie say, oh, can we go to bed now? I say, oh no, I've just read an exciting bit in the book. And he said, no, you haven't, no you haven't. That doesn't happen in the book, Martin.
0: <laughs> you sound incredibly busy, designing and probably creating prototypes and and uh, setting things up and and trying to test your balances, but do you play any other games uh other than your own uh i try to um
1: yeah just playing your own games is a bit, it's, it's... <laughs> the thing is you you know with your own game what it's going to generally what it's going to be like and it's always nice playing other people's games a for that sense of discovery of a different rule set but also just to see what other designers are up to um so i i do try to play Other games that are kind of big. So I managed to get game. You know, I've managed to get to play Azul, which is good. I managed to get a couple of games of Rising Suns in because somebody. The Games Club had um, had uh, done the Kickstarter thing, so managed to play that. Uh, Played a couple of games of the Gaia Project recently because I I really like Terra Mystica. Uh, Mm -hmm. Stuff that I played recently. Things like yeah, I managed to get a game of Clans of Caledonia, but nowhere near as much as some of these people on the Geek who seem to play hundreds of games every year. I have no idea how they have the time to do that.
0: Just, I would like, suspect I would suspect they don't design games. <laughs>
1: probably not. Probably not. But no, it, it is mo- most of my game time is dedicated to playtesting. So yeah, uh, last Friday I was out playtesting. Playtesting Saturday night playtesting last night, and we play be playtesting Thursday night. I've just put out a call to see if anybody wants to do playtesting on Saturday. Sunday will be hard. Sunday, they have a once-monthly games get-together, the League of Extraordinary Games in Brisbane. So half of that will be playtesting, and half of that will be playing other games. But uh, I managed to blank myself a, a copy of Giant Killer Robots. So I'm going to take that down and see if I can get a game <laughs> to see what that's like. I was surprised. I thought, I mean, where we are, I mean, we're in a place called Logan Reserve. And I don't know if you know the term Bogan, but any Australian would know the term Bogan. And it's basically, there's not a lot of culture. There really isn't. And so it surprised me to find out there's actually quite a few game shops around here, and it's quite a few games, because I suppose maybe it's the elitist in me thinking that gamers, that they're more discerning person, aren't they? To be a proper gamer, you kind of have to plug into this alternative... Uh, lifestyle thing, you know, you have to get on the computer, you have to find other games. You have to make an effort to be a gamer. So it, it does right. tend to be uh, a more with it, I don't know, smarter person in general. Again, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that. <laughs> uh, it's not always the case, But I'm really pleasantly surprised that not only are there a lot more gamers around here than I expected, but there's a lot more people who are trying to become game designers to a greater or lesser degree. So the group I meet with on Thursday is just about game designers. just a bunch of uh, uh, folks who are really interested in designing games and we meet up on a Thursday and we just play test each other's games. Which is great from my point of view. Um, The thing I went on to Saturday is a game shop in Brisbane and once a month. They do a prototype session where they say, right, okay, we will be showing game designs from these people here, and people just turn up, and they're, they're given an incentive to play test the games. And if they play test the games, they get a raffle ticket. And at the end of the end of the session, somebody wins fifty dollar credit. So it, it is interesting. There's a lot more people out there playing games, and I don't know. You know, obviously the the, the market growing worldwide. We can see that. I mean, we can see right. in the, the more people that, that join Board game geek in Sales going up the Gen Con growing year and year. so we can see that the market's growing and also the number of people you come across I just design. I I went to my doctor's the other day um on an issue with my thought and um, he said, Oh, what do you design? Computer games? I said, uh, no, I, I design a board Oh, he said, I, I play railroad tycoon with a friend of mine. <laughs> I could say, I designed that <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, oh, can I tell my friend? And it's interesting, it's like, yeah, in the past you know, I've come across an accountant who plays Ticket to Ride. And so that these kind of games, not so much war games, but certainly the Euro games that used to be very, uh, you know, insular, they are bleeding out into the mainstream market. Um, it's just interesting. It's a, it's a good time to be a game designer in that sense. I'd hate to be a publisher now because the competition is so immense. But being a game designer, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of companies that want to
0: publish stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the publish publishing part of the business is the toughest. But the designer's good. Uh, I think it's good to be a game player right now. You know what, what we see here is uh, proliferation of uh, Euro games and uh, you know non-war game American style sort of with a conflict. Uh and, and oftentimes you'll go to a war game gathering and you'll see people playing eighteen XX and any number of deep strate- you know, strategic Euro game. Uh so so it's not, you know, it's it's not a, a purist crowd. Mm. Uh that purist group gets smaller and smaller, but the group that intermixes is growing very large. Yeah. There are um there are programs at, at a handful of very well known universities here uh that that teach. Both board game design and um, and PC game design, or or iOS or whatever it is, so we're seeing that. But I think there's also a mega trend now with designers that uh, that that there is a very large group that feels enabled to create designs and try to sell them, and it's it's terrific. It's it's good fun. It, uh, you know, there's a there's a subculture of of gaming and and sort of testing your skills, so you'll. You'll go to a to a to a location and and they'll provide you with some basic material and then you have an hour to make a game mm. and whoever makes the best game gets a prize yes. at the end of the hour so so I, I it's just a terrific uh the hobby has really blossomed from the days that I started in the uh, in the 1980s and um, you know, I, I couldn't be more excited
1: mm yes long may it continue.
0: Yes, unless, agreed.
1: Plus the bubble ready to Although I, I don't think it is. Th- I mean, again, it's purely based on anecdotal evidence. No, no, they write this up at all. But it feels to me with the kind of games that are popular at the moment on the geek, it feels to me that we've, there's a large influx of people from the video game hobby who have got tired of shooting each other on uh, the internet and they now want to shoot each other face to face.
0: <laughs> right, and perhaps as that group gets older, it's more important to find the fellowship that you find when you play a multiplayer game, and and uh, you know that's that's how the that's how the industry's changed so much from when I played uh, in the '80s. It's just the the multiplayer game, the ability to to kind of prod your friend and celebrate his victories mm-hmm. uh, makes makes for a different, very different environment. And um, so I, I, you know, once again, couldn't be more excited. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and speak with me about Lincoln. And uh, as I told you before, early on, I'm a big fan and, and uh, look forward to what else you do. I understand uh, it may not be in two player war games. Um, but but I look forward to uh, to your games because I very much enjoy the way you think about them and enjoy the elegance that you build in and and admire it a great deal. So thank you again for taking the time. Thank thank you. It's been a pleasure to chat. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I will publish some notes and other references on my website conflictsimulations.com Thanks to the Portland, Oregon based band Jenny Don't and the Spurs for the intro and outro music Check them out at JennyDon'tAndTheSpurs.com Do me the favor of sharing the podcast with a few friends that'll help get the word out Leave me a comment on Board Game Geek with your thoughts and ideas I'll close with a special thanks to Martin Wallace And that's it for me As always, I'm dreaming of the outlaw life for you and me, and I'll be back soon.